On April 13, 1970, the Apollo 13 spacecraft was about 200,000 miles from Earth en route to the moon, seemingly having executed a flawless takeoff, and it was about that time that Jack Swigert, who was the command's module pilot, he initiated a stirring of the oxygen tanks, which was a routine and no-risk procedure. Or at least, they thought it was a no-risk procedure. But 95 seconds after he flipped the switch, the astronauts heard what they described as a pretty large bang, which is not something you want to hear. You don't hear any bang when you're in space. And as they looked out the window of the spacecraft, they could see a cloud spewing out of their aircraft. What they could not have known while they were still on Earth was that their number two oxygen tank was actually a ticking time bomb, and Swigert haplessly detonated it with the touch of that switch. And here's why. Here's what happened. Two years earlier, in October of 1968, that oxygen tank, which would eventually be the number two on Apollo 13, was accidentally dropped two inches, just two inches, by those who were handling it. And they ran some initial tests to ensure it was okay, and they thought it was, but it wasn't. It had not been properly dealt with. And that two-inch mishandling would ultimately become the fuse for the infamous Apollo 13 explosion. Seemingly small issues that aren't dealt with immediately can and often do become big problems. And this is true, of course, not just in outer space, but within the context of the church as well. Small relational issues that aren't dealt with biblically do not remain small. A little bit of bitterness, just a little bit of gossip, a little bit of unforgiveness that is not looked directly in the eye repented of, nailed to the cross, and cleansed by God himself, will grow. That's why our weekly confession of sin time is so important. It's our time to deal with any sin that we have left unconfessed, to have God cleanse all of that sin. Because as John Owen once wrote, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And we could add, be killing your church because... We are a part of one body. And how many church splits have occurred because a little hurt feeling or a little misunderstanding was just left to fester? And what could have been dealt with in just five minutes with a little humility and the balm of the gospel grows into a leviathan of pride and bitterness. And the Apostle Paul knows this as a pastor, as a planter of many churches, If you've been with us for most of the Philippian study, you'll know that one of his key themes has been, when he's not exulting in his joy, it's a plea for real-time, intentional unity within the body. For instance, we see back in chapter 2 through 4, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This has been a theme for Paul. He is keenly aware of how Satan loves to sow 
discord within the body. Satan loves to pour sand in the gears of the fellowship through misunderstanding, through hypersensitivity, through offense-giving, offense-taking. He wants to pit the saints against each other so that Christ's glory is diminished, so that our joy is depleted, and so that our redemptive impact is ultimately destroyed. Well, in our text today, we see that Paul's plea for unity is not just theoretical, but rather, the Philippian church had at least one real-time conflict that left unresolved was a ticking time bomb. It was the number two oxygen tank on their ship, as it were, and it involved two women named Yudia and Sintik. That's the Tennessee pronunciation. <laughs> it involved Yudia and Sintik, and, and this is the only time in Scripture that, that we meet these women by name. We, we don't know anything else about them specifically. So what do we know then? Well, we know that their feud was a public one since Paul had heard about it. He's in jail in Rome, which is about 800 miles from Philippi, and he heard about it. This is before Facebook. And he's including it in this letter, which will be read to the entire church. So this, this is not just a, a private matter. Also, we know that these women were veteran members of the congregation. We know this because Paul says, you've, you've labored side by side with me in the gospel. And that line right there might give us even more clarity on perhaps who they were. Because if you'll remember back when we began Philippians, you actually find the planting of the Philippian church in Acts 16. So Paul and his crew come to Philippi, and verse 13 says this. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come to gather. So Paul proclaims the gospel to these women, and the text recounts the conversion of Lydia and her household, and then the jailer and his household, and the church is birthed. And so it's plausible that since the initial core in Philippi was a woman's prayer group, and Paul says, I labored side by side with these women that they were part of this group from the very beginning. And if that were the case, it helps us understand why this conflict was such a consequential issue for the church at large. Often those who have greater influence in the church can cause the biggest rifts because they have seniority and sway, which they can then use to draw battle lines down the middle. So this could be the case. We don't know for sure. What we do know is these otherwise faithful saints were having some sort of feud that apparently they could not resolve on their own. And it threatened not just their unity, it threatened the greater unity of the church. So Paul addresses this, and he gives us some principles in the text on how we deal with conflict and disagreements biblically. What do we do? When there is a real-time quarrel or conflict in the church, how do we approach that? When do we get involved? And we're going to unpack that next week. But before we do that, today, I, I want us to consider conflict and quarreling more generally. 
How did Yudia and Sinti arrive here in the first place? Because, yes, we want to know how to resolve conflict biblically, and we want to grow in maturity so that we have less conflict. Yes, it's good to know how to remediate black mold. It's better to know what conditions cause it in the first place so they can be avoided. So how do we get here? What's happened where two sisters who had experienced the grace of God, had experienced the blessing of fellowship, had a sincere love for Jesus Christ, a sincere desire for the gospel to go forth, how did they end up at odds? And again, we don't know the details, so we can't speak with specifics. But scripture gives us general categories that we can certainly apply to this, to this quarrel, to this feud. And the Apostle James is especially helpful here in understanding what, what's happening under the hood of quarreling. And so there's two main insights that he has that I want us to look at today. And the first comes from chapter 4 of James, and it's probably the most direct treatment on quarreling in the New Testament. It's James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle James says this, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So that's dealing with it pretty directly. What causes quarrels? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet, but you can't get it. You can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So what causes quarrels and fights? James says, number one, a warring passion. A warring passion. That word for passion in Greek is hedone, and it's where we get the word hedonism. You want something, something that will give you pleasure in that moment, something that will make you happy. And then someone else becomes an obstacle for you getting what you wanted. They stand between you and your desire. You desired that house and you were outbid. You desired a quiet, calm dinner after a long day. That was not to be. And someone stood in the way. Children, you desired the final cookie. That wasn't children as the end of that. <laughs> I needed the period. Children. You desired that final cookie, and someone grabbed it right in front of you. You were totally cool with that, right? No. You desired for your husband to wash the car on his day off. You wanted the car clean. It would have made you happy. You went to the gym instead. You desired your wife to have a certain shirt ironed for work. You wanted that. That would have been pleasing, and it didn't happen. And you see them as keeping that happiness from you. Perhaps for Cintiq, it was a desire to use church resources in a specific way. She had a specific ministry in mind that she was very passionate about. But maybe Yudia had other thoughts, and she was closer friends with the deacons. And so she got her way. We, we don't know, but that's certainly plausible. There, there are endless things we could say. You wanted something. I wanted something. And it did not happen. And you can point to a specific person in your mind that stood between you and that passion. And so you feel the storm start to brew. 
Now, here's the first thing to notice. Usually the desires that we had that we did not get that lead to conflict were not wrong in and of themselves. There is nothing in that list that I just read that was a sinful desire. All of those were fine desires. But quarrels begin when in that moment your love for what you want is stronger than your love for the other or for God. And so it declares war. This is the essence of idolatry. It's when a good thing for a moment becomes a God thing. It's when in a moment an an ordinary desire becomes an ultimate desire. This is what idolatry is. You'll place obedience to Christ and fellowship with a saint on a little altar to that little God in that moment. And in just a flick of a switch, when our passions start to war, our greatest allies can become our worst enemy in a moment. And the quickness of the switch really is startling. You might remember that scene in Lord of the Rings when Frodo, is at, he's at Rivendell before he sets off for Mordor. And he's in, I believe, Bilbo's room. And Bilbo notices the ring again, just for a moment. Remember that? And he becomes a little bit agitated. And then all of a sudden he goes, <laughs> remember that? Like that jump scare part? We were watching it with the kids, and Felicity was watching it. And so that's our little one. And so we look over at her to see how she responded. And she looks at us and goes, <laughs> <laughs> And she was adorable in that moment, but what the scene revealed wasn't adorable. His eyes turned wild and he snarled at Frodo. Because in that moment, he desired something. And so Frodo stood between him and his desire. So he was an enemy. And I would declare war. We do a good job of tucking it in usually. But that was a profound moment. And that's why James uses such seemingly strong language. You desire and don't have. So you murder, he says. Now, if you think since you've never committed homicide, then clearly this passage does not apply to you. I'm good. If you think that, then you missed it. Rather than letting non-murderers off the hook, James is actually showing all of us how destructive our warring passions can be. Just how serious that flash of harshness or hatred or bitterness actually is if it goes undealt with. He's not letting some of us off the hook. He's putting all of us more on the hook. And he's simply reiterating what he learned from his big brother, Jesus Christ who said, you've you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And of course, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus got angry and did not sin. Yes, there is righteous anger. Sometimes it would be wrong to not be angry about something. But that's not what he's talking about. He specifically says here, angry with your brother. This is a personal hostility towards someone close to you because somehow they stood between you and what you wanted. This is a warring passion. So if you can say to someone in your community or even in your heart, you fool, you idiot. If it goes unchecked, that is the stuff of murder, Jesus is saying. This is dropping the oxygen tank two inches. 
That sin or potential sin, that Bilbo moment needs to be quickly acknowledged and brought into submission and repented of and cleansed by the blood of the Son in that moment, which takes humility. Otherwise, James says, it will go to war. And the price of war is always heavier than we wanted to spend. For Judea and Syntyche, what was at stake was nothing less than over a decade's gospel growth in Philippi. That was the price that they were paying for this quarrel. That's an insane price to pay to get your way. And it shows just how powerful our passions can be. So what causes quarrels? First, it begins on the inside with a warring passion. I want something, you kept me from it, I will declare war. And then when those things aren't brought into submission through the help of the Spirit, it goes public. It seeks to hurt and to damage, which is what you do in a war. However, the weapon is not typically physical, but it's rather first through our words. And that's the second thing we'll consider. Conflict grows when warring passions lead to wounding words. And again, the Apostle James gives us a strong warning here at the incredible power of our words. Now, this is from chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 4. James chapter 3, starting in 4. He says, Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and they're dri driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pirate directs. Pilot directs. Pirate directs. That'd be pretty cool. The pilot directs. So also... The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it's set on fire by hell. Then he goes on in verse 9, with our tongue, we'll bless our Lord and our Father. And then with it, we'll curse people who were made in the likeness of God. So again, we, we don't know the specifics behind the conflict in Philippi. But it clearly has gone public to some degree. It was known. It was out there. Words had been exchanged. A Facebook thread on their ministry group had started. And Paul was inspired by the same spirit that James was. And so he knows that this conflict that was now public, if it was not dealt with, it could and it would escalate. And once you are at that level, you are in danger of saying things that could cause very real harm that is not easily repaired. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. You wouldn't casually swing a machete around the dinner table or at the small group. Well, Providence would. That's another story. <laughs> well, Solomon is telling his son that saying rash words, speaking quickly and harshly, is that. It's thrusting a sword. And James points out the remarkable capacity for all of us, even Christians here, to move from blessing God with our mouths to using that same mouth a minute later, to seek to wound or even curse image bearers of God. Sin always causes temporary insanity. 
It blinds us to this inconsistency. This is James' point. You worship God, and then you curse somebody made in God's image. That, that doesn't make sense. But this really does cast our dealings with each other in, in its proper light. Every person you encounter is made by God in the image of God, which means when we insult someone or we use words to hurt someone on purpose, it's an offense against God. You call a coworker or student or sibling an idiot. You gossip about a parishioner. You say a cutting or disrespectful word to your spouse. It's an offense against God. And God intends for that reality to give us pause. That's why he wrote Proverbs 17.5. He says, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. So he's thinking, think of the, the lowest person in the echelon that you can think of. You just insulted his maker if you insult the poor. Our words create, excuse me, and as we've already seen, our words don't just impact that one person. Rather, they always spread. Our words create culture in our church. Either a culture of conflict and disrespect or a culture of love and of dignity and of reconciliation. And so next week, again, we'll look at how to deal with conflict according to this text but for today, we also want to know what causes and inflames conflict so that we can avoid it. And we saw the two primary ways quarreling or ungodly conflict happens is through warring passions that, when unchecked, become wounding words. And so, in closing, I want to give us a practical exhortation based on each one of these. Here's a practical exhortation based on each one of these two points. So, number one. The next time you feel yourself getting riled up, you feel that anger or frustration or bitterness towards someone brewing, stop and remember James' wisdom. What is causing this quarrel? Okay, my, my passion is at war right now. That's, that's what's causing. So do a quick diagnosis. What do I want right now that this person is keeping me from? So we stop. This is... Thinking maturely, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Okay, I'm, I'm ready to go to war, which means my passion has been ignited. What's happening there? I wanted them to notice how hard I worked today, but they didn't. They let out with a complaint. I, I feel frustrated about that. I wanted to, to be seen for what I did. I wanted to be consulted before the purchase was made, but I wasn't. Therefore, I felt disrespected. Oh, I wanted, I wanted respect. I wanted my idea to be chosen because that makes me feel significant. It's not a bad thing. So I want it to be valued. That, that's what's going on. So whatever it is, just pull the thread. What passion was ready to declare war? And not only will this help you by the power of the Holy Spirit, remember self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, not only will it help you tame it, it will also help you engage the person in truth, dispassionately in a productive way, in a dignifying way that invites relationship, that doesn't seek to inflame the offense. Number one, start by asking, where is the war when you feel the anger brewing? And then exhortation two, when you wound someone with your words, when that happens, when you heard it and you knew where it came from, don't apologize, repent. Don't apologize, repent. 
And here's why this is so essential. Apologizing deals only in the horizontal, human to human. But repenting deals with the horizontal in light of the vertical. It deals in truth before the face of God with the reality of sin. So we apologize when something is an accident, but we repent when we have sinned. And when we have the humility to call sin, sin, two very important things happen. One, we feel the gravity of of our actions. We are dealing in the light. We feel the weight of that. And two, then we experience the grace of God. Rash wards are like sword thrusts. And an apology is a band-aid, which doesn't actually deal with the wound. But in repentance, we are asking God to bring the balm of his grace to dress and to cleanse and to heal the wound that our sin caused. An apology only deals skin deep. Repentance taps into the reservoir of divine grace, which Jesus bought with his blood for us. 1 John 1, 7 through 10, if we will walk in the light will walk in the truth, tell the truth, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse us from all sin. Now, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. See, when a low hum of resentment starts to develop in a home or in a church, it's almost certainly because sin has not been dealt with biblically. Because sin, by definition, puts us out of fellowship with each other. So fellowship needs to be restored. And that is only something God can ultimately do. And he does it through repentance and forgiveness. And that's why it's so essential to see rash words as sin and to deal with it accordingly. And this begins with our closest relationships, namely at home. So parents, I I admonish you, create a culture where sin and even seemingly small sins are dealt with biblically. At the dinner table, a child says a rash word, a, a cutting word. And in that moment, fellowship is disrupted. You all feel the temperature change around the table. They've sinned against neighbor and against God. And the Lord is not going to allow you to have peace until that's dealt with. So put on your John the Baptist robe and call the sinner to repentance before moving on. And when that happens, forgiveness is to be granted. And then you can move on. Or men, you speak harshly and curtly to your wives, not honoring her as the weaker vessel. Humble yourself and don't apologize. Repent. Say, I've sinned against you when I spoke that way. Please forgive me because I desire to honor you. And it doesn't need to be a lot of pomp and circumstance or self-deprecation. Just deal with it. Plead the blood. I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Of course I forgive you. Of course. Okay. Praise God. That's, That's how quickly this could be dealt with. But if it's not dealt with that way, these sins layer on top of each other. Just a thousand paper cuts that end up in a ton of disfellowship. And the more we as a community deal with Sid head on, humbly and totally confirmed in the grace of God, even seemingly small sins, 
the happier we'll be. The more we'll glory in the gospel and the stronger our fellowship will become. You've heard me quote this verse and I'll probably do it a thousand more times because it is so wise. But it's from Psalm 19.13. He says, this is David praying. He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So let, don't let my small, in, seemingly insignificant sins have dominion over me. And then I'll be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. So you have sinned presumptuously against someone this week or this month that has damaged your fellowship. Go to them. Humble yourself. If there is an untreated wound from a sword that you thrusted, go to them. Humble yourself and plead the blood. When we're done with the service, go and repent and restore fellowship. And forgive if somebody did that to you. Colossians 3, you have a complaint, go to your brother. And then, brother, forgive them of, of that sin. So let's be a people who are committed to being in fellowship with one another for God's glory and for our joy and for the greater salvation of our city. May it be. And all God's people said, amen. And amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that through our Lord Jesus Christ, you did not hold our sins against us, but you sought us out and you reconciled us to yourself. And then you gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so, Father, I pray that Pilgrim Hill would be a people that are reconcilers, that are blessed because we are peacemakers, a people that know the precondition to being saved by Christ is that we're all sinners. And so we're going to sin against each other. And we can acknowledge that. We can humble ourselves. And I pray that we would be a people who, who often experience the wonderful grace of knowing that we are forgiven and we have been cleansed and that we would be a people of deep and abiding and expanding fellowship. In Christ's name we pray.